Hello authors, I'm Joanne Morell, children's and young adult fiction writer and author of Short Nonfiction for Authors. Thanks for joining me for the Hybrid Author Podcast, sharing interviews from industry professionals to help you forge a career as a hybrid author, both independently and traditionally publishing your books. You can get the show notes for each episode and sign up for your free author pass over at the Hybrid Author website to discover your writing process, get tips on how to publish productively and get comfortable promoting your books at www.hybridauthor.com.au. Let's crack on with the episode. I hope you're all keeping well in whatever part of the world you reside and listen to the podcast in. Today's interviews with author and librarian Emily Paul, who shares her expertise on the role of a public librarian and how the library system works in Australia, as well as what weeding books is, ELR, PLR and DLR payments, hosting paid author events at libraries, striking up relationships with your local librarian, her author adventure and much more. So in my author adventure this week, it's been a pretty exciting one. If you follow me on social media, you will have seen that my picture book, The Shouting Family, made the long list in the Squibby, that's Australia, New Zealand, Larrikin Publishing House picture book and graphic novel competition. So this was a competition that was run for Australian Squibbies and New Zealand Squibbies. I think it was in April and I wrote this picture book. One of the podcasts way back then probably talked about me submitting it and I'm just stoked to see that it got longlisted. So I've had a lot of congratulations from that. Yeah, recognition as well, which is great. I'm glad they enjoyed it. I also received my literary speed dating results from the ASA literary speed dating event, which was held last week. Um, I pitch, I say young middle grade series, although I'm starting to learn, I think it's actually a junior fiction series. I'm saying upper junior fiction, lower middle grade series. Anyway, last week, I uh, wasn't a match with the agent, Melanie Estelle. She did make a comment which helped me rewrite the pitch before I pitched the um, University of Queensland Press publisher, Claire Hume, who I think I mentioned last week, she liked my idea and she wants to see my work. So I'm just doing the final touches and then I'm gonna, the full manuscript's been requested as well as a synopsis and cover letter. So I've got to get that over to Claire and everybody keep your fingers crossed for me. One thing I did want to mention is this week has been as close to succeeding in my children's and young adult, you know, traditional representation goal. I've been looking for traditional representation for my children's and young adult work, which will make me a fully fledged hybrid author once I get a publishing deal here because I self-publish non-fiction. I put that out myself and I want traditional representation for my children's work so once that happens then I will be a hybrid author. But as it is so near I just had this, oh, I wanted to share, I just had this overcoming feeling, uh, this overwhelming feeling of thinking you know oh someone's interested in my work well, I don't want that now. Because it made me very aware that once that happens, I, I almost, I'm crossing a line, things will change, my status will change. Putting myself out there, I'm, I've been trying to do that for so many years, but of course I will keep crossing it because it's what I've been working towards and I can't wait to see what the other side brings. But I almost feel like I'm on the edge of something and then once I cross over it, that's this, this where I'm at now, won't be the same again, obviously, so. And it's a little scary for things to change. I just wanted to share that as well, you know? <laughs> Because I, I guess we all feel scared, and uh, but I'm also very excited as well for, for what the next step brings.
So if you love the podcast or any of the episodes has helped you further in your author career, you can now pay it forward by buying me a coffee over at www.buymeacoffee.com slash thehybridauthor. Capital T, cap, all cats hybrid and capital A for author. So the links for, for that can be found in the show notes and at the top of my social media pages. So hopefully by me adding this link in these areas, you can simply click on it and go to the page to let me know. Or you can leave me a review, pay it forward by leaving me a review on whatever platform you listen to the podcast on. Nothing big, just a line or two to let me and others who write like you know how the podcast is helping further your author career. Let's all support each other. So that's enough from me, let's crack on with the episode. Emily Paul is a former bookseller turned passionate librarian from Perth, Western Australia. She writes short stories and historical fiction and was highly commended in the 2021 Fogarty Literary Award for her historical fiction manuscript, The Good Daughter. Her debut collection of short stories, Well-Behaved Women, was published by Margaret River Press in 2019. When she's not writing, she can usually be found with her nose in a book. And we all join you there, Emily. Welcome to the Hybrid Author Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. How is it you came to join the magical world of books and so many, so many roles, you know, <laughs> in, inside, outside and, and selling and wow. I mean, I think it was a bit of a foregone conclusion that I was going to be a bookworm. My grandfather used to teach English literature. My mom is a huge reader. I've just, you know, seen people reading books and loving books my whole life. But it wasn't until I got to having to choose what I wanted to do for uni the first time around that I went to uni anyway, because I've, I've now done three degrees. But the, wow. first, yeah, the first time around, I was sort of trying to think about what I could apply to do. And I hadn't really considered the world of books as being an option to study until I was I remember sitting in the chemistry lab at high school and talking to my friend and trying to convince her that she should become a book editor because she loved reading so much. And then the more I was talking about it, the more I realized I was actually convincing myself that <laughs> books and reading and related fields was a legitimate career. Because I think before then, I had this very traditional idea of what career I should go into. Just to give you an idea, at various times, I have wanted to be a Japanese teacher, which considering I've now forgotten all the Japanese I ever learned, seems ridiculous. <laughs> I've wanted at one point I wanted to be a chiropractor <laughs> um, and so that's it's kind of a, a pattern for me over my whole life that the things that have been important to me from being the, the customer side of things both when it came to writing books and when it came to being a librarian it took me a really long time to twig that that was something that I could go over the other side of the counter and be the person delivering that service yeah so that's sort of how I came to the world of books and then you know from there I did my creative writing degree I got a job in a bookshop the job in a bookshop became a job in a different bookshop that was a library supply company from there I spent a lot of time talking to librarians trying to get them to buy books and I thought wow librarians are really the, the best people so I went and did my 
librarian's degree. I did my Master of Information Studies. Now I'm working part-time in a library and, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that this is the path that I've gone on. Sorry, I know that's a really long answer no, to your No, 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 it's great. I'm so envious that you, you've had all these roles that I would just, oh, I, I just would love to have myself, you know, bookseller, librarian. These are the people that are in my kind of world and I just think it all looks amazing. So I, that's that's great that you've had had a turn at being them all. <laughs> Yeah, so I could talk to you about so much today, but we're going to focus in on your career as a public librarian. So can you tell us what the public librarian role entails, like the day-to-day or? Well, I mean, so this is the thing, isn't it? From from the outside, (laughs) I think people think librarians sit around cataloging books, shelf books, shush people. Um, (laughs) That's the stereotype, yes. Yeah, there's the stereotype, isn't there? You know, libraries are, are quiet spaces and it's full of people reading and using computers and studying. And there is that. The sort of foundation of public libraries is that we're there to facilitate access to information is one of our primary goals and also to support community building and support people's self-education you know, facilitate their access to to books for education. So it really depends on the public library that you work in, what the role of the public librarian is. Certainly where I am, I do 19 hours a week as my, my base level and I'm one of a few librarians at my branch. So there's my branch librarian and then there's myself. And you never know on the day that you turn up for work, what it is that you might be asked to do. We do all sorts of different things. So I'm involved in collection maintenance, which involves a lot of weeding, which horrifies people (laughs) um, because it's essentially throwing books away. So if you can imagine, you know, how many books are published all the time, I'm sure you can, you've probably encountered these massive TBRs that people have, you know, we're getting thousands of books through a year and we're not this infinite repository of books. So if we're getting a thousand books in a year, we kind of have to get rid of a thousand other books to make room for them Mm. on the shelves. Managing holds queues can be challenging. You can imagine, you know, Trent Dalton put out love stories earlier in the year and we may get one copy per branch but that's not enough to get people reading them as quickly as they would like to be reading it so we might end up with 12 copies and by the time the demand runs out what are we going to do with all those 12 copies then we might have to get rid of eight of them and people are just horrified I think by the concept of weeding (laughs) unless they've been faced with the challenge of it from the inside yeah well I never actually thought of it too much so you know we constructed the questions the other day and I just thought spend a lot of time in libraries you know I go there to write on the days that I can and the you know Mm. the kids are in school and it's very much what you're saying it's not a quiet place it is uh (laughs) Thursdays is the and I used to also go there with my children when they were younger you know the um the rhyme time and the story Mm -hmm. time and that kicks off when you're you're sort of working and there's the knitting club and there's all sorts of clubs and things going on and there is a lot of chatter and that's what Mm -hmm. happens and it is definitely a community space and I did think the other day I thought you know I do know how many books are out in the world sometimes I feel overwhelmed by it you know as someone who's trying to write a book I'm like how will it how will it be in amongst all this world you know with a million books but then I did think what actually does happen in libraries with the books to make room for the new books I suppose Mm. as well so yeah that's that's obviously your job sometimes (laughs) 
Yeah. So I do I do a lot of actioning reports based on items that maybe haven't been borrowed in right. 12 months. And yep. so sometimes that's a process. If you go to the shelf, you find the book, you open it, and there's a big, horrible, formerly wet food stain in the middle of it. And you go, well, that's why that book hasn't been out in 12 months. And obviously we right. don't want to then put that one in the book sale. Yeah. So we, we're actually putting quite a lot of books in the bin which you know I wish there was a better environmental alternative maybe somebody's coming up with one somewhere along the way but Mm. you can't really recycle them once they've been covered and had tags and things put on them either so there's that too but yeah like you say I mean libraries are fairly noisy places I I do story time once a week um, which can be (laughs) challenging because you're trying to engage the parents and the the grandparents and carers as as much as you're trying to engage the four-year-olds who you know, it's very hard for them to sit still for half an hour. And I think it's very hard for some of the adults to sit still and not look at their phone or talk to the person <laughs> next to them for half an hour as well. So I have to be on for that 30 minutes. I think at one point pre this most recent wave of COVID, I did a session which which had 60 people watching. <gasps> wow. I was referring to myself as the pink wiggle after that. Um, So that was the highlight. And then now with this wave of COVID, I have sometimes had sessions where there was only six people. So that's quite nice. And then they get their little craft activity to take home. Yeah. So I do all sorts of things. You know, I've been involved in author events. I've been involved in, um, I'm currently supervising a prac student along with some other members of my team. So that's been really interesting. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm very passionate about something called Reader's Advisory, which is um, suggesting books to people based on the other books that they've enjoyed. Wow, that's interesting, um, yeah. Yeah, we did some courses to to support that and I've designed a a service where people can request a tailored reading list based on what they're in the mood for on that particular day. So that's That's fantastic. Another so it's just <laughs> for, for uh, like regular members of the library can come and request that service from you? Uh, they do need to have a library card for our library mm-hmm. service, yeah. 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 But they can join up as long as they've got a residential address in WA. You can actually join any public library in WA. You don't have to be a member of that council. Yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing. Yeah, it's very varied as well. And I would say even the ladies or the the library staff that's there stocking the books, are they, sometimes are they volunteers? I know in another local library, like for putting the books away, can you get volunteers the in the libraries? Yeah, shelving, yeah. Yeah, where I am, um, volunteers do a lot of the shelving, staff mm-hmm. do a lot of the shelving too, because sometimes you just get that real quiet period yeah. and making everything look nice and tidy can be very satisfying. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, volunteers are a big part of libraries. They do, yeah. do all sorts of things. Um, I know of some councils where the Books on Wheels program is completely administered by volunteers as well. I'm a bit passionate about volunteering as well because that's the area of research that my mum did her PhD on and and my grandmother used to work for Volunteering WA. So it's really cool to be able to work with so many amazing volunteers. Well, it goes back to us saying like the stereotype of libraries being like the quiet place and then the stereotype of librarians being the shh and putting the books (laughs) away when in fact they are, you know, they're actually in front of the community these days facilitating, um, you know, sessions and Mm. uh, hosting events and and yeah just working sort of in the community and customer service and uh books is there but it's it's not the main part of the job which is incredible yeah so back to talking about weeding and you know books and libraries and stock and obviously so what you were saying when you review the books 
I take it, have you got like categories or lists or something? Like these are all the new ones. So you probably, does it go on like a, a yearly thing? These books have been around for a long time. We've got to check the, a, the damage of them or if they've been taken out in a year. That's how it's determined what books are weeded. When I'm weeding, I look at a few things. Uh, how often has it been borrowed? How many times has it been borrowed? Because you can imagine if it's been through 40 or 50 different people's hands, it's going to be looking pretty grubby. Mm. Um, the age of it certainly and also like is it in a series because we don't want to create a gap yeah you know well let's take out the third book in the Vera series and then oh everybody (laughs) reads one and two and now they want book three and we've got to purchase four more copies that can cause a problem although we do have access to the interlibrary loan system where we can get things from other libraries in WA as long as it was purchased with state library funding so basically though books come from two different streams of revenue your local council money and your allocation from the state library yeah that's amazing How do books become available in libraries do libraries sort of browse and buy from specific catalogs uh, at certain times of the year, that kind of thing. How how does someone's book end up in a library? Okay, so um, as I just mentioned, there's two sort of pots of money that funding comes from. And this isn't my role at the library either, so I may get something slightly wrong, but my understanding of it is part of your budget from your local council is a collections budget and you also get funding from the state library and you may have noticed that when you borrow books from the library some of them have barcodes that start with a three and some of them have barcodes that start with an a and the ones that start with a three are state library funded items and the ones that start with a are your local council funded items so the ones that start with a three are the ones that can be loaned to other libraries on the interlibrary loans program right now It has changed in recent years, but there's a couple of firms that are specific library supply bookshops. There's three big ones and they do all of the cataloging and processing and things as well if libraries want that. I believe they still work off a profile system which came into effect a few years ago where libraries define some parameters based on their community. So, you know, we want this many fiction books, this many non-fiction books, we need this percentage, large print, audio, um, children's books, etc. And they often will define their popular authors as well. They're like automatic buy authors. So, yeah. um, you know, your big examples would be your Nora Roberts and your James Patterson and the, the people that pretty much need their own wing of the library because they put out yeah. three or four books a year. Yeah. The treehouse stories. Oh, gosh, the treehouse <laughs> The things that, you know, it's a no-brainer that, yes, we're going to want a copy of that. So those companies, those book supply companies, basically do the ordering for the libraries based on those profiles. And then the collection development librarians can also top up orders by purchasing from bookshops or from those same companies on a separate fund to incorporate debut authors and incorporate extra copies of things that they might need or um, to get backlist items. You know, if we've accidentally weeded the third copy in the Vera series and we need two more, then we would go and do that um, as well. So these um, collection development librarians, is that a specific role that you study for? Or so, so your role... Could you find you were doing that one day, that job, or no, that's specific to that that's library? That's where I would like to go. That's definitely where my right. passion lies. And I have done some activities towards helping that team, but that's not my specific role. It is part of the degree that you do. You do learn about collection development, but it's more as well 
um, once you've done the general information studies degree, because it's it's called information studies in most unis. Yep. Um, then you sort of where you are, you get some on the job training as well, because every council is going to be slightly different in how they approach it. Um, and often it's part of, you know, a team of maybe one or two people might do the adults and the children separately, or they might sort of share the role a little bit. I mean, obviously very small councils, it might actually just be one person who also mm. does eight or 10 other things as well. You have to be quite flexible. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what makes it exciting. I think that you get to do different things each day. And like you said, you show up and you're not sure what you're doing that day. That's pretty, yeah. pretty. Absolutely. Cool. I mean, yesterday morning, I think the first thing that I did once we opened was I helped a, an elderly lady photocopy a whole bunch of documents because she was saying I've got a tremor and I'm really intimidated by the photocopier and I was like you know what I'm here to help you I will do your photocopy yeah oh that's gorgeous yeah there's a lot of um like you said educational and information sessions run through the library you know to educate older adults say with social media and things about tax and I've been in my local library for like learning about tax and stuff as well so no it's so good they, they run so many good things um can I ask you again you're saying that that's obviously not your specific role for the collections and the development thing do you know if it matters with the the books that they're obviously considering you talked about categories and formats is the way the book published an issue an issue ever is that something that ever comes up you know you've got your traditional publishing houses but in this day and age we've also got like people who are self-publishing and stuff is that something that they're they consider or it's more just the content of the book I suppose I mean there's a number of issues related to that self-published books they're not automatically discounted by libraries we're very happy to have self-published books or books that are published not by the the big guns in publishing bearing in mind that if it's difficult to order like if it's only available directly through the author and they're going to charge us a lot for shipping and things like that that might be a factor because councils have checks and balances around you know you have to fill in a new supplier form often and you have to have an abn and it has to be easy to pay you on an invoice and and things like that if it's something that you can get through one of the distribution channels whether that be booktopia or something like that or one of those library supply companies, I think you've probably got a much better chance. And I, I don't know many libraries that can easily just accept a book if the person walks into the library and says, hey, here's my book. You want to buy a copy from me here and now because they do have to abide by the rules of their council's finance department and things like that. Maybe some libraries can, but certainly the ones I've worked at, it's much more preferable to be done through a proper ordering process and, and paid on an invoice and have all the proper numbers on the form, et cetera. Um, there's also requirements about the format as far as uh, minimum size requirements. Can you imagine, you know, you got a little tiny mm. pamphlet and you shelve it and it, it's gone. It's Lost. between two books. It's gone. <laughs> we don't like spiral bound books either. Right. You can't put a spine label on them. I think yeah. it's one of the main reasons, but also they fall apart. Yeah, it's just a few factors that sometimes people don't take into account and they may not necessarily be the reason that the, the book is not put into the collection. Um, you know, certainly I have seen some really small books put into our collection, but it, it, it's something that might make the librarian think twice. Yeah, about that. No, that's really interesting. It is. I did um, <clears throat> some script writing uh, minor at uni and borrowing the scripts from the 
the library was a nightmare. Mm. They oh, and because it, it's a spiral, it's yeah. the spiral thing, and they were just falling apart. And uh, yeah, so I quite understand that. But yeah, it's something you just don't really think about at all. No. Um, off the top of your head, like a rough estimate, do you know how many how how many books are, you know are allowed in the collection? Like, well, your library say specifically, or I don't know. I guess allowed in the library. Like, I don't think there's a cap on it. Okay. Um, gosh, it, it, it's in the high thousands. But that's good to know. There's not a cap because yeah. that's what I was thinking. Maybe you know they reach a certain point and they're like, right, we we have to stop for this moment, and then yeah. you know, then you 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 start with the weeding, <laughs> and then they start again. I'm sure like that's an analytics. You know, like one of the programs that we use to analyze our collection, there would be certain times where we would be considered overstocked, but that's got to do with how much space we have versus how many books are on loan at any one time. So if a certain percentage of our our collection is on loan, we consider it a success rather than it being like, oh, no, we've got 20,000 books. We've got to stop now. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I know it's, it's, it's crazy. Oh gosh. Um, So speaking about loaning and borrowing from library and things, and I, do all sorts. I borrow print books and ebooks and audiobooks from the library. I love borrow books. I'm a very yeah. um, big fan of that. And uh, I also run a book club with the book, is it books in a bag or bags in a books or, or something like that? So yeah, we're very much a part of the library. And in Australia, authors mm. are really lucky to be able to claim, you know, educational lending rights, ELR and public lending rights, PLR, from our libraries for our print version of the book. Now, it's something I know the ASA are fighting for, and it's a big thing that's kind of up in the air at the moment because of COVID and all sorts of things. But digital lending rights for us at the moment, for authors who say I've got an audiobook in the library or an ebook, they like the, the, the educational and the public lending rights where they receive a little bit of money when it gets borrowed from the library. That's not the case right now for their digital formats. Mm. Do you know much about that uh, in the way of authors sort of lending, uh, well, digital lending rights in general? Is there much talk amongst that between librarians or any moves forward? <laughs> So ELR and PLR is actually administered by the government. It's not, the payment doesn't actually come from libraries. The library community, I don't know that whether we have much sway over what happens with digital lending rights. I do know that as an author, you know, my book's been out for, it'll be three years in November that my book's been out. And so I don't, I think I don't receive royalties anymore because I'm not selling books, but I'm still getting ELR and PLR payments, which is compensation for the number of copies of your book held in educational institutions and public libraries, rather than based on the number of times that your book gets loaned. But it's compensation for lost income because multiple people are accessing that freely available copy rather than buying Mm. your book. I know that the ASA puts... Forward, I think it was in 2021, they put forward another submission to the government asking for digital lending rights because we certainly saw that during COVID, during lockdowns, people were accessing digital copies mm. more and more, particularly when the library was closed and the only thing they could access was the digital copy. And I don't think that's going to go away. I think that the more people we educate about how to use these platforms, the more use they're going to get. It's never going to completely do away with physical copies. No. Except maybe in the case of audiobook CDs, they might go away. Yeah. But 
not for a very, very long time. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly all for digital lending rights. And I, I have never had a conversation with a librarian that has gone, oh, no, we can't have digital lending rights. No, no, that's it, yeah. So I don't think the library community are necessarily opposed to it, but it's not something that we actually have much control over as yeah. far as I'm aware. I have spoke to somebody about it before. <laughs> feel like it could have been the copyright agency or something like that when I did a podcast episode on PLR and ALR um, I wasn't aware of that at all so I think that that's fantastic that we have that because a lot of countries don't at all either so yeah we are Um, but yeah I agree like the digital lending rights to them it's not as simple as just borrowing like obviously the other lending rights the the print ones because because of a big factor there was licensing and I I don't I have to get my head around it to be honest but um our digital resources I think we get like a certain number of licenses that people can be accessing the file at the same time so it might be like you know, you go to look at an audiobook and it says it's on loan and it's not going to be available until August 2022. And that's because we can't ha- just have a free for all, everybody accessing yeah. it at the same time. WA has just introduced a new e resource platform called Hoopla, oh, yeah. which doesn't have the limit on the number of people accessing it on the same time. They do limit how many streams you can have per month. I think you get 10 each. Certainly that's the case where I work, but they don't have the the limits on the number of people accessing at the same time. So there's no holds queue, which is great. And there's a lot of Fremantle press titles on Hoopla. I was really oh, happy fantastic. to see. Yep. So because all the different platforms would have different rules like that, I imagine it would be a bit of a headache to survey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that's that's great. Hoopla, I feel like I've heard of that before. But I have searched uh some Fremantle Press titles before and and I and some titles as well. And yeah, in this day and age and someone who loves audio, it's very disappointing when I find that that you know the audiobook's not there, especially mm-hmm. like I love listening to audio to be able to do other things at the same time as well as being busy mum. So it would be great even just to to see that platform kind of take off as well. And then you know, authors be compensated for that so they don't lose out as well. Look out for that episode in the future (laughs) we've obviously talked about your role as a public librarian and you've mentioned you know you wear different hats at work and you've been um you've hosted author events there and you've done things like that what is the process there when it comes to say workshops or talks or book launches or author events that are held at the library How, how does that come about is that something that again do the libraries pay authors to come and do this or is there a budget for these things or is it just authors off the street coming to ask if they can host events there? How does that sort of work in the library system? There is no one size fits all answer for this, unfortunately. I mean, again, it comes down to what you've got in your budget. Some libraries are very lucky to have a specific budget for events. Other libraries, they've got to make do with what they've got. So I think while personally as an author, I'm all for authors getting paid ASA rates. I think the individual author's got to make the choice. Do they want to do an event at their library because they value that part of their community, regardless of whether or not they're going to get paid or do they want to, do they want to sort of stand firm on their principles? And I know that there are other authors who will be like, no, absolutely not. Authors should always get paid. That, yeah, I, I respect that that viewpoint, but I also have been in the position of knowing how little funding there is available and wanting to have events available to connect authors to community. So it's a really hard position to be in when you know both sides. I wish all libraries had the budget to do 
fantastic author events and put on wine and cheese and all that sort of stuff. But it's just not the reality right now. I think the libraries that can pay often have somebody who arranges it all. Whereas the ones that don't, they're probably more open to someone walking it. But I can't, I can't speak for all yeah. libraries. You know, it, it's, yeah. it's very hard to to speak for all libraries because we're all so different. Yeah, I go to a lot of a library events and like mm. author events and things like that. And yeah, there is ones where there is all the wine and the cheese. And some of them, I think one last year as well, had like a it must have been near Christmas and it had a brass bla- a brass band playing and it was oh. It was- <laughs> It was a really good event, actually. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, in my mind, I just thought, wow, does it, you know, did they put this on or how, how does it go about? So when, um, say, you're organizing an event for one of these events through your library that the, you know, the, the library has budgeted for, are you in charge of being the, not the MC, I don't know what the word is, like introduction person and setting up and things like that? Is that is that your job? I mean, it's one of the, the roles that I've taken on for some events. We actually have a person who coordinates all of our cultural programming though so I sort of you know put my hand up and say I really want to go to this talk can can I go along and be the person that stacks the chairs and serves the wine and so I had to go and get my RSA earlier in the year um, so that I can serve the wine Um, and I do sometimes do the interview as well and that again came from you know taking the initiative to pop my hand up and say hey you know I've interviewed you for the Perth Writers Festival before can I do the one in the library if you're not available and that means we can do more events because she doesn't have to be in two places at once. That's cool and then also sometimes at these events as well there's a bookseller there so again obviously the person that conducts all the events they organize the bookseller and that would that just be connections with the author or would it be connections with the library or just the local bookseller um in our case it's we try and invite booksellers from our local area try and spread the community love yeah yeah Yeah. oh no that's amazing so do you have advice to our authors listening that are looking to support their local library and get involved in the community and strike up a relationship you know I I remember I've always gone to my local library to write when I can and I've always felt a bit shy to go up and say to the author I'm sorry the librarian oh I'm such and such and 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 just talk to them really and and try and you know strike up that relationship do you have any do librarians are they happy they're obviously happy to talk to the community but do you have any advice there like between the as an author I suppose and a librarian authors yeah striking up relationships with their local librarians I mean I'm always happy to have a chat I don't know about other librarians but I I guess my biggest piece of advice is you don't want the first time you go and speak to your librarian to be when you're asking them to put on an event or stock your book you want you know like oh I've never been in this library before I don't even have a library card but please buy five copies of my debut novel yeah yeah um you know use your library go to events have a bit of a chat with the staff if you get the opportunity be friendly be part of that community and then that you know they'll support you back yeah, I think we do remember people. We do um, build relationships with with our patrons and and remember them. And you know, I've certainly got regular patrons that I think, oh, this person would love this book. I'm going to tell them about it when they come in. And yeah, we love a chat. There's a a saying in in library world that are you really a librarian if you haven't been shushed by another patron? So. <laughs> 
Oh, no, that's fantastic. Well, you're also, as you've said, uh, a writer as an author, as well as a librarian and has been you know, a bookseller and things like that. So can you tell us about your book and also how being a librarian has helped your writing career, if it has? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so my book came out in November, December 2019, right, right before all of the pandemic stuff it's called well-behaved women it is a collection of short stories um, and it's about the women we know the women we see every day and don't think twice about um, the secret lives of women it is I think it's about 17 but it has been a long time since I've (laughs) been working on it uh, 17 short stories that were written over uh, 10 years of writing so the earliest one I think that was included in the collection was probably written while I was doing my undergraduate degree, so around 2009, and the latest one was written in the lead-up to submitting the final work to the publisher. I worked with local author Laurie Steed on a mentorship program to get the book ready for publication and was lucky enough to be part of a project that Margaret River Press ran where they paired three emerging short story writers up with three mentors. So the other two books that were part of that project were um, Fabulous Lives by Bindi Pritchard, which came out before mine, and then Sky Glow by Leslie Teal, which came out after mine. I hope I'm pronouncing Leslie's surname right. It's when you only know people online and you think that's how you yeah I usually at the start of the podcast interviews I go I highlight stuff throughout and I yeah I have to check yeah I have to check (laughs) yeah I'm lucky I I have one of those names that most people know how to pronounce (laughs) if not spell correctly I do always get Paul with one l on the end so I get in the habit of um, spelling it to people or saying with a double l which has resulted a few times in people writing Emily with two l's (laughs) um but that's okay yeah very minor thing (laughs) Um, yeah, so yeah, that's my book. It had two very small print runs. I think there are still a few copies left in the wild if people want to track it down. Lovely people at Dimmick Subiaco keep it in stock for me and so the you, books as well. Yeah, wonderful. So do you would you encourage authors to approach their, say, emerging writership by uh, mentorship and also applying for things that publishing houses I guess have put out like more mentorship I mean any of those sorts of opportunities if you can get them are are fantastic learning opportunities just be a part of your local writing I've said I said the word community so many times in this podcast (laughs) be a member of your local writing community yeah Yeah. sign up for the writing WA newsletter join a writer's center go to events meet other writers because you just never know what opportunities will come along but you know then there's also the whole idea of the more stuff you put your name forward for the more competitions you enter things you apply for it's like throwing spaghetti at the splash bag you know it's not all going to stick but something might you are going to make a bit of a mark and, and people will get to know your name and you just never know what's going to come out of it yeah that's it no I wholeheartedly agree there so are you still actively writing (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's it (laughs) yeah I'm I'm working on a historical novel set in the 1930s and 40s in Fremantle um it's a sort of doomed love story lots to do with what was going on in Fremantle um during the second world war with the uh, American submarine base that was the worst kept secret in Fremantle (laughs) 
Wow, yeah. that sounds really interesting. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think Fremantle Press will find that interesting <laughs> as well. Yeah. So, so you'd said you were highly commended for the Fogarty Literary Award, mm-hmm. and um, did they the for the Good Daughter? Did that did that end up coming out or? Uh, no, it hasn't no. come out yet. Yeah. Um, if anybody wants it, send me. An email. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I that one I ended up writing. I wrote a draft and then I took six weeks off in the first COVID lockdown and I rewrote it, sent it off for the, the Fogarty because why not? Um, was lucky enough to be highly commended among among a few other really talented writers. Um, yeah. Brooke Donnell obviously she took that took award out. out and I'm really looking forward to her book coming yeah. out in a few months' time through Fremantle Press. But so far it's still unsigned. Um, and I may, when I finish this Fremantle book, go back and have another go at it and start sending it out again. Yeah. Now that I've had a bit of space. Yeah, good for Ooh. you. I think I'm saying, if you say Fogarty, I say Fogarty. <laughs> I don't know how it's supposed to be said. <laughs> Sounds like how you're saying it. So maybe I'll have to change that. But oh, well, no, definitely. We look forward to seeing that whenever you put it out there and it emerges. Thank you so much for sharing your valuable time and expertise on librarians, Emily. Um, can, can you tell our listeners where they can discover you and your work online? And yeah, sure. I mean, the place I'm most active is on Instagram where I'm at incredible rambling Elemy, spelling my own name wrong. I'm also, I have an author page on Facebook and I have a website, which is www.emilypaul.com. Two L's in Paul, one L in Emily. <laughs> I think maybe you should change it now to, to two L's in Emily, two L's in Paul. Because, you know, <laughs> Just L's everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again. That was amazing. Thank you. So there you have it, folks, the wise and wonderful information shared there from the lovely Emily Paul. And if you haven't seen any of her work, then check her out now. Next time on the Hybrid Author Podcast, we have adult and children's author Michelle Ellie Royce, who's going to be talking to us on going hybrid and why, after being traditionally published for the first lot of her books, she's taken the plunge with her new junior fiction series and started publishing her own work. That's it from me. Bye for now. That's the end for now, authors. I hope you are further forward in your author adventure after listening, and I hope you'll listen next time. Remember to head on over to the Hybrid Author website at www.hybridauthor.com.au to get your free author pass. It's bye for now.